Hello, and welcome to the History of India podcast. This is episode 1G, More Sayings of Seers. Ashoka the Great did a beautiful thing. In his grandfather's time, the word Pashanda was bandied about, and it was an ugly term. It referred to the followers of the new sects of ancient India, Buddhists, Jains, Ajavikas. But it had some of the same ugly overtones that heretic and infidel have in the medieval Mediterranean world. It carries with it a great deal of animosity. For example, we are told that the Pashanda heretics despoil rituals, and they're not allowed to come into the country to settle. And it's one of the old emperor's own advisers who writes this. But in Ashoka's mouth, the word has changed. Pashanda no longer carries any hint of animosity. In fact, it no longer even covers just the new sects. Ashoka now explicitly includes the old Brahminical orthodoxy as Pashanda too, alongside the Buddhist Jain and Ajavika communities. This week, we meet the great lost sect of ancient India, Ajavikism. Ajavikism has got no followers today. We've got no writings from its founders. In fact, we've got no writings from it at all. None of its holy books survive. Everything we know about it comes through its rivals and its enemies, primarily Buddhist and Jain sources. And in fact, Jainism is the really important source because Ajavikism and Jainism are sects that are tied at the roots. Their great holy men, according to the stories, started out as friends, but ended up as sworn enemies bent on destroying one another. And the two sects competed fought over one another for followers. Or so say some of the stories. We take a look at the history and find this isn't necessarily so. The great holy man of Ajivikism was called Makali Goshala. He was born around the same time as the founders of Buddhism and Jainism, that's the 6th century BC, the place we started the podcast with. The story goes that his mother and father came to a village and his mother was very pregnant. So uh, his father stowed his mother and along with their luggage in the local cow shed to go and look for a place to stay. But no luck. There was nowhere to stay. There was no room at the inn. So Gashala was born right there in the cow shed. In fact, Gashala means cow shed. Go, cow, shala, shed. Other stories say that Gashala was a slave. And that one day he was working for his master, carrying a huge pot of oil. And he was just about to tread in some slippy mud. So his master called out to him, don't go there only. And Makali sounds a bit like the Sanskrit for the last bit of this phrase. Don't go only. But only a very, very little bit. Anyway, Gashala ignored his master, stepped in the mud, tripped, slipped, fell, and the oil went everywhere. Gashala, terrified of his master, picked himself up and ran away fled as fast as he could, and his master ran after him and managed to catch him by the sleeve of his garment, but Gashala slipped out of his clothes and escaped naked into the forest. And if all this sounds as fishy as saying that Gene Wilder must have been born to a mad scientist in a genetics laboratory because the Holiday Inn was full, well, you said it, and I didn't. One rainy season, Gashala was wandering around and he found shelter in a weaving shed at Nalanda. Nalanda was then a small village. Later, it's going to become the great university, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. So Gashala climbs into this weaving shed to get shelter from the rain, and there he finds a wandering naked ascetic. And this ascetic is called Mahavira. 
Back in the day, Mahavira had been a very well-to-do man. He had born in, into a republic near Vishali. Perhaps he'd married a princess and had children. In general, he was a man on the up-and-up. But at the age of 30, he left his family behind him to become an ascetic. He wandered around naked, attacked by humans and animals alike. And right now, as Gashala finds him, Mahavira is fasting for one full month. And Gashala hangs out there, sheltering from the rain, and Mahavira is there meditating and fasting. Well, after a month is up, Mahavira goes to a local bigwig to ask for some food. And the bigwig feeds him. And after he's fed, the heavens rain down blessings on the local bigwig. Literally blessings. Flowers fall down from heaven. Gashala sees all this and he's very impressed. He asks to become a disciple of Mahavira. But Mahavira doesn't respond. He's back meditating, doing the next month's fast. After that fast is up, the same happens again. Mahavira goes to get some food. Blessings rain down. Gashala says, hey, I want some of that. Asks if he can be his disciple. Mahavira ignores him. It keeps on repeating, and Gashala really wants to join. He shaves his beard, his hair, he starts to fast. And finally, months later, he's accepted as Mahavira's student. And they spend the next six to seven years together as wandering ascetics. There are many stories of their time together, and they roughly fall into two categories. In the first sort of story, Gashala behaves like an absolute ass, manages to annoy the people around him, and ends up with a sound beating. In one story, Gashala shouts at some rowdy children playing nearby, and he's soundly beaten by their parents. In another story, Gashala passes a wedding, calls the bride and groom ugly, and he gets soundly beaten. In another story, Gashala complains about the excessive fun at a festival he's been invited to. He's thrown out, he wheezes his way back in, he complains again, and he's thrown out again. Often he's helped out by being Mahavira's companion. That party, for example, he's finally allowed to stay in simply because of Mahavira's sake, the people put up with Gashala's complaining. So that is the first sort of story. Gashala behaves like an absolute ass, annoys people, gets beaten. In the second sort of story, Gashala behaves like an absolute ass and tries to undermine his teacher. Mahavira made various different prophecies about Gashala, that Gashala that day would be given a counterfeit coin, that Gashala that day would be fed human flesh, and so forth. And then Gashala would doubt his teacher, and often try and prove that his teacher was wrong by undoing the prophecy. One of these incidents led to the two men parting ways. It was their sixth year together, and the two men were walking past a sesame plant. The sesame plant has beautiful bell flowers that ripen into pods surrounding the stem. And inside those pods are the sesame seeds that we know and love. Well, they were passing a certain sesame flower, sesame plant with seven flowers on it. And Gashala challenged his teacher, tested his teacher, and asked him, what's going to happen to the seven flowers on this sesame plant? And Mahavira says, well, they're going to become seven pods. Gashala, determined to prove his teacher wrong, pulled up the plant, uprooted it, and threw it on the ground so that it would die and the, the, the flowers would never ripen. But just after that, some rain fell, and the plant took root again, and the seven flowers ripened and became seven sesame pods. Well, when they were returning that way, Gashala was full of glee. He knew he was about to prove his master wrong, or so he thought. But Mahavira said to him, I know what you've done. I know what you did to that plant. But the seven flowers have become seven pods anyway. 
So Kishala went back to go and check, and everything that Mahavira said was true. Well, Kishala starts to get a bit greedy, starts to want some of the power that Mahavira has, starts to resent being under the thumb. And pretty soon after that, the two men parted ways. Mahavira went on to become the great Jain saint, and Gashala went on to become the great Ajivika saint. Okay, so here's the plan for the rest of the podcast. First, we're going to look at Mahavira and the Jains. Then we're going to look at Gashala and the Ajivikas. And then finally, we're going to look at the animosity between the two. After Gashala left, Mahavira carried on his life as a wandering ascetic for three more years. Then, one day, in a field by a river, he became all-knowing. He saw the way to achieve moksha, escaping the cycle of birth and rebirth. Mahavira had become a victor over pride and greed. Hunger, thirst, sleep, fear, disease no longer affected him. And he joined a long line of ford-crossers who tell humanity how to achieve moksha. And he founded a community to disseminate his teaching. And his followers were Jains. Jain means victor. We're not today going to go into the philosophy that he preached. The Anekantavada, the Syahavada, and the cycle of history and all that sort of thing. There's another podcast that's going to deal with this stuff. And that's the History of Indian Philosophy podcast by the excellent Peter Adamson and the excellent Jonardan Ganeri. Available on iTunes or the History of Philosophy Without Gaps website. Very highly recommended stuff. Today, we're interested in what life was like as an ancient Jain in this community brought together by Mahavira. And life was tough. You can get a sense of this just by the name Jain. Think about the name Buddhist. This comes from Buddha, which means enlightened one. And we heard in the previous special episode how Buddha offered a middle way to get to moksha without going through extreme asceticism or uh, extreme um, enjoyment of the world, an easier path to salvation. But compare this to Jain. This comes from Jinnah, which means victor or hero. Mahavira offered no middle way to moksha. To be a Jain, you have to perform acts of heroic asceticism. You have to become a hero with complete control of your body and mind. What heroic acts of asceticism did you have to perform? Well, if you were a Jain monk or nun, you'd start with the five great vows. Non-violence, or ahimsa. Truthfulness, non-stealing, non-acquisition, and chastity. Mahavira's claim was that by following these, we can live in such a way that we don't gain any more karma, and the karma we have disappears, leaving us able to enter moksha. Ahimsa, non-violence, is the really central vow. And in Jainism, the requirement for, uh, for non-violence is very strict indeed, much stricter than the Buddhist or Brahminical equivalents. Many Jains... Um, Monks or nuns wear face masks just in case a fly enters their mouth by accident. And then not to shave in case that kills lice. Instead, you have to pluck out your hair. And then not to light lamps because a moth could be attracted to it into the flame and die. And the ancient Vedic sacrifices, well, they're right out. Even sacrificing a dough model replacement, like many people were doing in the Mauryan era, is no good. One chap who, who did this, who wanted to perform the Vedic sacrifices, so replaced the animal with a clay model, went to hell, 
despite not actually having killed any animal, simply because it expressed a violent disposition. It didn't live up to the very high standards of Ahimsa in Jainism. So that's Ahimsa non-violence, the greatest of the five great vows. Actually, the other five great vows are equally strict. Take the vow of chastity, for example. A Jain monk or nun is not to even think about sex. And sometimes, when an ancient Jain reached the end of their life, they would go and find a quiet spot, usually in a cave. They would sit down, they would meditate, and they would fast. They'd fast all the way to death. Chandragupta Maurya, the first of the Mauryan emperors, did this, and it still happens today. Not all Jains became monks or nuns. Plenty of them remained lay worshippers. And these were called hearers, shravakas. They still are. In fact, unlike Buddhism, the lay worshippers became a part of the Sangha, the formal Jain community. Becoming a monk was much harder if you were a Jain, but being part of the Sangha was rather easier. You could do it without leaving your home and becoming ascetic. But it still wasn't that easy. You didn't have an easy time of it if you're a Shravaka, if you're a hearer. The lay worshippers uh, took the five vows only in a slightly less rigorous form. For example, the vow of chastity. Jain monks couldn't think of sex. Jain hearers should avoid sex after they've had children. Many apologies, by the way, if you're Jain and all this is obvious and patronising. Uh, we should move on. Perhaps because Jain lay worshippers are allowed into the Sangha, into the formal community, Jainism flourished in ancient India. It flourished especially in South India and in Sri Lanka. There's even a king down there who seems to be modelling himself on Ashoka. Except for, instead of patronising Buddhism, he patronises Jainism. Just like Ashoka, he calls himself Piyadasi, beloved of the gods. And just like Ashoka, he makes caves and retreats and dedicates them to the Jains rather than the Buddhists. Jainism was most prevalent in South India partly because of a deliberate policy to send Jain missionaries there from the north, um, but also partly because of patronage from people like this. There are also ancient stories which offer an additional explanation of the prevalence of Jainism in South India in ancient times. During the time of Chandragupta Maurya, the founder of the Mauryan Empire, who was himself a Jain, there was a great famine. And many of the Jain monks migrated south to Karnataka, which is in southern India. This seems to be more than just a story. Even Chandragupta Maurya went south to die in the Jain way, or so the sources say. And there are plenty of caves in South India in the late 3rd century BC to prove a large Jain presence there at that time. So we have a historical, uh, historically attested community of Jain monks in southern India. Anyway, after some time, the Jains in the north started to loosen the rigours of their asceticism just a little. I mean, it was still pretty damn rigorous. But they did loosen up uh, the lifestyle of Mahavira so that instead of going everywhere naked, they started to clothe themselves in simple white garments. Well, when the Jains who had, who had been, who'd gone down south started to visit the north, they saw this loosened lifestyle and they were pretty appalled. And after a bit of to and fro between the northern and the southern Jains, the Jains split into two sects. There were the white-clads, the northerners who wore white, and the sky-clads, the southerners who wore, well, they wore nothing. 
Or at least, this is the story as the white-clad Jain tradition has it. The sky-clad Jains often reject the story. But anyway, the distinction between the white-clad and the sky-clad still exists, and the sky-clad Jains are still mostly in the south. So anyway, Jainism became extremely influential in ancient India. Patronised by emperors, one of the four great sects with uncounted numbers of followers. Nowadays, Jainism is a pretty small religion. Fewer than 1% of Indians are Jains, and only about 250,000 people here in the UK. But the community brought together by Mahavira still exercises a huge amount of influence. What about the other chap, Gushala? Well, when Gushala left Mahavira, he took a similar route. He spent six months in deepest austerity. He found a lake. He sat down, facing the sun, and raised his hands above his head and meditated. He ate a handful of beans every few days and nothing else. And after six months, he gained spiritual power. Then he went to Shravasti, which is one of the six great cities of ancient India. And he found a potter's workshop. Her name, the potter's name for the record, was Hala Hala, which is a great name. So Gashala goes to Halala's workshop and he spends the rainy seasons there, based in the workshop in Shravasti. And he starts to gather a community of disciples around him. These followers were called the Ajavikas. What exactly Ajavika means is a matter of dispute. My favourite account is that it means professionals, and it was a term of insult, as in, he's a professional devotee of God, he's a professional ascetic, he's not in it for the love of it, he's in it for the money. But Ajavika might mean unemployed or lifelong, we're not really sure. There were Ajavikas before Gashala came along. Uh, they were wandering ascetics with a stick. Actually, sometimes Ajavika means nothing more than a wandering ascetic with a stick. But there might also have been a group of people following something like Gashala's ideas before he came along. Because just as with Jainism, Gashala is said to be the latest in a line of teachers. But as with Jainism, Gishala came, when Gishala came along, uh, the group became more unified and more organised. And in Gishala's time, they owned buildings and land in major cities and towns. They seem to be especially connected with potters, who keep cropping up in stories of the Ajavikas. But actually, Ajavikas came from all sorts of backgrounds. There were kings, advisors, Brahmins, and plenty of Shudras and Chandalas. There also seemed to be a large amount, maybe a majority, of tradesmen, setis, merchants, and the like. Becoming part of Gashala's community was a harsh experience. The initiation seems to have involved some serious endurance. We have rumours of holding hot coals in both hands, or uh, being trapped and having each hair plucked out from the root. Uh, all of this was to prove your indifference to pain and pleasure. Even after initiation, day-to-day -day life wasn't much more comfortable. We have stories of being buried up to your neck and sitting there, or sleeping on beds of thorns, or sitting in silence, lots of fasting too. And Ajivikas were often naked, though perhaps not always. Life as an Ajivika was a harsh one, so harsh that it disgusted and outraged outsiders. They practiced harder austerities than Buddhist monks. There's no middle way here. 
They're going along the same line as the Jains, extreme austerity. Actually, there seem to have been some nice perks to being an Ajivika. For one thing, you were allowed cold water. For another thing, Ajivikas didn't seem as keen on celibacy as Jains. And they seem to have had regular meetings with ceremonies where they sung and they danced. But it's still a harsh life. And the death wasn't any gentler either. Jain sense went to a cave or whatever, refused to take food and starved to death as we've heard. In a similar way, Gashala seems to have asked his closest followers to stop taking water. Actually, what they were to do was to meditate for six months, and at some point they were to stop taking clean water, uh, they could take water off the potter's wheel or running off stones, dirty, polluted water, for a while. But after that, they had to stop taking water altogether, and they could keep a mango in their mouth, although they weren't to eat it. Actually, having a mango in your mouth as you're not allowed to drink or eat anything seems like a kind of supreme act of heroism to me. Uh, rather than a concession to make things easier. I mean, the temptation to just bite down and have a bit of juice must have been extreme. But I've never tried to not drink myself to death, so I wouldn't know. Finally, the Ajivika who went through this process would die from a lack of fluids. Gashala and his strict way of life, sitting quietly in the cowshed, gathered quite a community around him. And here we get to fill in the details of a story that we started many podcasts ago. It's a story about King Ajatashatru. Remember Ajatashatru? He was the king of Magda, uh, the one who imprisoned his father and then had his father killed. Well, anyway, one day King Ajatashatru was in need of spiritual guidance. So he asked his advisors to suggest sages who could come and talk to him. Six advisors came forward and they suggested six sages. And these guys are the six heretics of Buddhist literature. And number two on the list of the six heretics is our friend, Gashala. So Gashala comes to the court and King Ajitashatru asks him, what's the point of asceticism? Can you get anything out of asceticism? And here is what Gashala says. There is neither cause nor basis for the sins of living beings. They become sinful without cause or basis. Neither is there cause or basis for the purity of living beings. They become pure without cause or basis. There is no deed performed either by oneself or by others which can affect one's future births. No human action, no strength, no courage, no human endurance or human prowess can affect one's destiny in this life. All beings all that have breath, all that are born, all that have life, are without power, strength or virtue. Instead, they're developed by destiny, chance and nature, and experience joy and sorrow in the six classes of existence. There is no question of bringing unripe karma to fruition, nor of exhausting karma already ripened by virtuous conduct, by vows, by penance or by chastity. It can't be done. Samsara is measured as with the bushel, with its joy and sorrow and its appointed end. It can neither be lessened nor increased, nor is there any excess or deficiency of it. Just as a ball of thread will, when thrown, unwind to its full length, so fool and wise alike will take their full course and make an end of sorrow. 
Gashala's saying that no, there's no point to asceticism, and more than that, there's no point to anything else. You can't affect your destiny uh, by, by your actions, by taking vows, or, or by being a good person. Fate has complete control over your life. It always had. In fact, you're not even a good person because you're fully controlled by fate. You're not even a bad person because you're fully controlled by fate. Is that what Gashala taught? That we can't avoid fate? Later texts add further teachings to the Ajivika Creed, atomism and error theory about moral facts. But most of the texts refer back to this idea that Gashala is preaching that fate has complete control. That you're not morally responsible for anything you do, whether it seems like a good act or a bad act, because fate uh, has control. That human effort is merely intellectual because fate has control. Everything's fate. Don't bother trying. The difficulty in my mind is that these texts telling us about Ajivika doctrine are from theological opponents of Ajivikism. They aren't likely to give a careful and sympathetic picture of Ajivika thought. And the second problem is that the ideas attributed to Gashala are often a little bit, well, silly. In fact, such obvious silly thoughts, such obvious fallacies are attributed to Gashala that even a schoolchild could see through them in minutes. How could a sect which carried on for almost two millennia be based on such flippant ideas? So perhaps Gashala taught doctrines that sounded a bit like what we hear from the Buddhist and Jain texts, but maybe more careful and more insightful than, mem than members of rival sects always manage to see. There's a, a latish source, a Jain source, called The Sayings of the Seers, which treats Gashala as an authoritative source. But what he says there is not that all is fate. Instead, he says that you should be steadfast in the face of a changing world. Closer to stoicism than fatalism, though from a distance they might look and sound the same. Another historian thinks that uh, Gashala and the Ajivikas merely thought that you got to endure the effects of the bad karma you've already earned, though you can avoid getting new bad karma. So there is a point in being a good person. Anyway, whatever their doctrines, the Ajivikas were extremely influential in ancient India. Even in Gashala's time, they had centres in multiple cities and towns in northern India. They may have been patronised by the great kings of the Mahajanapadas. And they soon spread south, like Jainism did. By the time of the Mauryas, they're in Sri Lanka. Ajivika fortune-tellers were everywhere. They were at the court of the Mauryan emperors themselves. It was an Ajivika fortune-teller who predicted Ashoka's greatness first. And Ashoka himself picked out the Ajivikas as a separate sect alongside the Brahminical tradition and the Jains and the Buddhists. These are important people shaping and changing ancient India. Indeed, one of Ashoka's descendants supported the Ajivikas directly. He had beautiful caves carved for them near Pataliputra. We talked about them in a previous podcast. It might be dead today, but Ajivikism in ancient India was a full-blown major sect shaping the world alongside Jainism, Buddhism and the Brahminical Orthodoxy. Hostility. It's been behind so much of what we said in this podcast, this hostility between the sects. Take that story about Kashala being the student of Mahavira, and all those stupid, rude and downright ugly things Kashala said to have done. 
it doesn't all ring true. And it's hard not to see this as an attempt to put Gashala and his Ajavika followers down. Gashala is inferior to Mahavira. Mahavira teaches him everything that he knows. And everything Gashala might have done right was actually secretly Mahavira at work, according to these stories. And there's little that Gashala manages to do that isn't wrong. He ends up even eating human flesh. It all seems set up to show that Gashala was a fraud and Mahavira was the real deal. And in fact, Mahavira said this explicitly according to these stories. One day, when Gashala was in his potter's workshop, he decided that he needed to lay down the doctrines of his community once and for all. So he called in his six bishops, something like bishops, not entirely clear what they were. He called in these six leaders and together they started to sort out the doctrines. And some of these doctrines are about the infallibility of Gashala. Well, Mahavira heard that Gashala was being treated with this extreme reverence, so he went to the city and he denounced Gashala as a fraud. And he forbid his followers, he forbade his followers from talking to Gashala or to Gashala's followers. And the people of the city, who had previously been in Gashala's pocket, now turned against Gashala. At this, so the stories say, Gashala was furious. So he went to the place that Mahavira and his disciples were staying, and he confronted him. First off, he tried claiming that he wasn't the same Gashala that Mahavira knew. He wasn't the same chap who had wandered around for six years with Mahavira. Instead, that Gashala had died, and his body had been taken over by the soul of another person. When this didn't impress anyone, he started insulting Mahavira. Well, one of Mahavira's disciples took offence and, and stepped forward to defend his teacher. So Gashala blasted him with ascetic power. The disciple turned to ash. It seemed that Gashala had some power after all. Another uh, disciple of Mahavira stepped forward. Gashala blasted him too. Not quite as badly, but he still turned to ash. But then Mahavira stepped into the fray. And Gashala blasted Mahavira, but Mahavira had complete control of his body and mind and he was left unharmed. Instead, the blast reflected back onto Gashala. Gashala didn't realise it at first, but he soon became sick. And seven days later, he died from a wound inflicted from his own hand. And in his hand was a mango stone, a chewed up mango stone, showing that he hadn't followed his own rules of keeping a mango in your mouth and not eating it as you died. An inferior, foolish hypocrite until the very end. Or so this story says. And this is surely the result of a deep-seated hostility between the Jains and the Ajivikas. It's no exaggeration to say that Gushala is the arch-enemy of Mahavira in quite a lot of Jain literature. And there's debate between the sky-clad and the white-clad Jains about whether Gushala's soul will eventually be redeemed or not. So it's still somewhat of a live issue. And you find worse accusations than this. Rumours of blood magic and cannibalism committed by the Ajivikas. At the very best, they're said to be hypocrites, claiming to endure hardships but secretly engaging in sexual freedoms and other uh, pleasurable things. You get the distinct impression of hearing one side of a fierce competition between two communities who are trying to be the most austere, who are trying to be out asceticize one another. Buddhist texts are equally hostile to the Ajivikas. Buddha is supposed to have called Gashala that stupid fellow, that foolish man. And the doctrine 
uh, that Goshala preached is said to be the most dangerous one around. Elsewhere, the founders of Ajivikism are said to be children of a childless mother, which is a really witty ring to it, but when you stop to think of it, it's a slightly odd insult. Presumably, the idea is that Ajivikas are frauds. Their ideas are barren. In Buddhist folk stories, Ajivikas are often cruel and disgusting. They're slave owners, cruel slave owners at that. They're disrespectful to the Buddha. They call him a shaved householder, presumably meaning that he acts like a householder with his middle way, you know, enjoying life. Uh, he doesn't really practice sufficiently rigorous austerities. You get the distinct impression when you read this Buddhist literature of a fierce competition between two communities. One thinking that the answer to life is the middle way, the other thinking that it's extreme austerity. All this hostility had an impact in the real world. Remember those glorious caves that Ashoka's successor donated to the Ajivikas? Well, he left an inscription saying that he'd given the cave to the Ajivikas on the cave itself. But sometime shortly after the Mauryan era ended, the name Ajivika was defaced, carved out of history, thrown away. And presumably the Ajivika community base there was carved out and thrown away too. The Ajivikas continued on for many centuries. They may have even hung around in India until the 13th century AD, but they were never again a force to be reckoned with in the Indian conversation. They had been crushed uh, by this hostility. Whatever the truth of the matter, whether the Ajivikas really deserved their terrible reputation or not, there's evidence that this hostility wasn't shared by everyone in the time of the Mauryan Empire. Not even everyone in the Jain and Buddhist sects. One of the, uh, the Jain texts is called The Sayings of the Seers. We've mentioned it already. It's probably compiled in the late Mauryan era, but it might have roots going much earlier. It's a curious book. For one thing, it doesn't have Mahavira giving his usual doctrine, focusing on the importance of ahimsa non-violence. Instead, his sayings are about the suppression of the senses. Uh, ahimsa is left to other seers in the book. And there are plenty of other spheres, seers in this book. This book is literally what it says. It's the sayings of the seers. What's more, most of them are placed on the same level as Mahavira, equals his peers. And one of the seers is Gashala. He's treated, as I said earlier, with, with authority, as, as having authority. There's no hint of animosity towards him, no hint of Mahavira hating him. So here we have a Jain source which seems to treat the Ajavikas with respect, or at least Goshala with respect. And it's not just Jain sources too. In, in Buddhist texts, sometimes uh, Jainism and Ajavikism are, are conflated, are confused as if there isn't any clear distinction in the minds of the early Buddhists. They're both to be treated with the same respect. And there are other hints too, that this animosity wasn't universal. The great kings seem to have had no trouble at all in supporting the different sects all at once, despite the fact that one of these sects is supposed to be evil according to the other. From Bindusara to Ajatashatru to Ashoka himself, they seem to have had no difficulty in supporting all three uh, founders, uh, and their uh, communities and their ideas. And it's not just the great kings who mix with people from all the different sects, it's the followers of the sects themselves. Remember, Mahavira had to explicitly forbid his followers from hanging around with Gashala's crew. 
Well, that would only be worth saying if his followers were hanging around with Gashala's crew in the first place. So we can assume that they, the different sects are, are mingling with one another. And indeed, there are stories in the Buddhist literature of Ajivikas and Buddhists hanging out, of Ajivika ministers finding ways to feed the Buddhist community, and other acts of kindness tying the followers of the different sects together. Also, the different uh, sects have more in common theologically than they might seem to. Ajivikas shared a reverence for the same ascetics as the Buddhists. The names of the forerunners of Gashala also appear as names of great ascetics in Buddhist literature. The Jain and Buddhist texts, the histories, which refer to the Ajivikas in this hostile way, were written centuries, sometimes a millennia, after the age of Mahavira, Buddha and Gashala. And they were written by people fighting for converts, people for whom the difference between the sects mattered most. If anyone was to take a rigid view of these matters, it would be the writers of these texts. So perhaps everyday people wouldn't have shared that same idea that these are these sects opposed to one another with a deep hostility. Some sort of personal contact between Gashala and Mahavira seems quite likely. The stories about the two are sometimes persuasively rich in vivid detail, and some sort of falling out between the two seems quite likely too. But, perhaps, for many people in Mauryan India, they saw things much more as they appear in the sayings of the seers. In their minds, perhaps, there are a collection of different wise men who say different but complementary things. And there are a collection of different communities, but they're not different factions at war with one another, but complementary communities. That's how Ashoka seems to have thought. And maybe the average person thought that too. Every week we read something from the original source materials. This week I've decided we're going to read two things. The first is a Buddhist account of the Buddha debating with some Jains. And the second is a Jain account of Jainism in their own words, just for a bit of balance. So the, the first is from the Majima Nikaya, and it's a story of the Buddha. Um, the Buddha's telling Mahanama something. Here's how it goes. Now, Mahanama, on one occasion I was living at Rajagaha, on the mountain Vulture Peak. That was the capital of Magda. On that occasion, a number of Niganthas, that's Jains, living on the black rock on the slopes of Isigili, were practicing continuous standing, rejecting seats, and were experiencing painful, racking, piercing sensations due to their exertion. Then, when it was evening, I rose from meditation and went to the Jains there. I asked them, Friends, why do you practice continuous standing, rejecting seats, and experience painful, racking, piercing sensations due to exertion? When this was said, they replied, Friend, the Nigantha Nataputa, that's Mahavira, is omniscient and all-seeing, and claims to have complete knowledge and vision. He says thus, whether I'm walking or standing or asleep or awake, knowledge and vision are continuously and uninterruptedly present to me. He says thus, Nagantha's Jains, you have done evil actions in the past. Exhaust them with the performance of piercing austerities. 
And when you are here and now restrained in body, speech and mind, that is doing no evil actions for the future. So by annihilating with asceticism past actions, and by doing no fresh actions, there will be no consequence in the future. With no consequence in the future, there is the destruction of action. With the destruction of action, there is the destruction of suffering. With the destruction of suffering, there is the destruction of feeling. With the destruction of feeling, all suffering will be exhausted. This is the doctrine we approve of and accept, said the Naganthas to Buddha, and we are satisfied with it. And then the Buddha goes on to question them, and of course, because it's a Buddhist document, uh, the, the, the Buddha has the better of it. And the, the conversation comes round uh, to this. The Jain say to Buddha, Surely, friend Gautama, we uttered those words rashly and without reflection. But let that be. Now we ask the Venerable Gautama, Buddha, who abides in greater pleasure, King Bimbisara of Magda or the Venerable Gautama? The Buddha responds, Then, friends, I shall ask you a question in return. Answer it as you like. What do you think, friends? Can King Bimbisara of Magda abide without moving his body or uttering a word, and yet experience a peak of pleasure for seven days and nights? No, friend. Can King Bimbisara of Magda abide without moving his body or uttering a word and experience the peak of pleasure for five, six, six or six, five, four, three, two days and nights, for one day and night? No, friend. But friends, I can abide without moving my body or uttering a word, experiencing the peak of pleasure for one day and night, for two, three, four, five, six days and nights, for seven days and nights. What do you think, friends, that being so, who dwells in greater pleasure, King Bimbisara of Magda or I? So that's the Buddhist story of the Jain doctrine. Only fair, I think, to have the Jain story of the Jain doctrine. Getting the doctrine from the original source. And this is from the Acharanga Sutra, uh, and it's about Ahimsa, that central doctrine of non-violence. And it goes like this. The Arhats and Bhagavats of past, present, future all say thus, speak thus, declare thus, explain thus. All breathing, existing, living, sentient creatures should not be slain, nor treated with violence, nor abused, nor tormented, nor driven away. This is the pure, unchangeable, eternal law, which the clever ones who understand the world have declared. Among the zealous and the not zealous, among the faithful and the not faithful, among the not cruel and the cruel, among those who have worldly weakness and those who have not, among those who like social bonds and those who do not, that is the truth, that is so, that is proclaimed in this creed. Having adopted the law, one should not hide it, not forsake it. Correctly understanding the law, one should arrive at indifference for, for the impressions of the senses, not act on the motives of the world. What has been said here has been seen by the omniscient ones, heard by the believers, acknowledged by the faithful and thoroughly understood by them. Those who acquiesce and indulge in worldly pleasures are born again and again. Day and night exert thyself steadfast. Always having ready wisdom, perceive that the careless stand outside of salvation. If careful, thou wilt always conquer. Thus I say. Okay, that's it. Thank you very much indeed for listening. Huge and sincere apologies. Uh, if I've got anything wrong, if I've insulted you, I've got a 
bottomless amount of respect for Buddhism, Jainism, uh, and the other uh, religions and, and views mentioned here. Didn't mean to get it wrong. I'm really sorry. Slightly less huge apologies uh, for those who have been suffering through my nasal tones. I've had a cold this week. That's why the podcast is a bit late. My mouth has been stuck full of long. Oh, long. Surprisingly few people know this. Long it is, a, a, I think you call it in England, a clove. If you want to get rid of a sore throat, you want to speak without coughing, stuff your cheeks full of cloves. You will need one clove and one mouth. Take the clove, remove the bobble from the top, stuff it in your cheek, and don't need, no need to chew it, just let it sit there, and the oil of the clove will kind of wash back to the back of your throat. And that clove oil is a very strong local anaesthetic, so you'll stop, stop coughing. Uh, something I tell all my students. Really useful trick. Uh, and it tastes kind of nice too. Apparently, uh, the, the courtiers of the, the Qin Emperor in China had to have a clove in their mouth when they went to speak to the Emperor so that their breath would smell sweetly. So your breath will smell sweetly too. So when you're down the pub and someone asks you, as they no doubt will, why are you interested in all that ancient history stuff, you can tell them there's a practical implication. Yeah, I now know how to stop coughing and my, how to make my breath smell nice. But that's it for this series. The next series should be underway in just a few days. Thank you again very much for listening. And if you've enjoyed the podcast, please consider donating to my wife's charity. That's the Snailhill City Memorial Fund. Details are on the website, which is historyofindiapodcast.com. Cheers. Take care.